0: Notice that the theme I've settled on is is Jesus as a learner. And and I do that because I think it's manifest in the Scripture that Jesus did, in fact, have to learn. I think it is an encouragement to us to realize that he understands that dynamic of our lives. And it perhaps uh, focuses or or crystallizes an issue that I I dealt with in in the Sunday school hour, and I'm not going to go back to it over much other than to say that it is so very important. Important not only because uh, it will help us, it will so amplify and enrich our relationship to our Lord. It's important because it's exactly what the Bible teaches, to realize that Jesus took upon himself genuine human nature. And he lived out a genuine life. As I said this morning, uh, you've got to get past the Clark Kent approach to Jesus Christ. I, I use that illustration all the time. My point is that if you know, I think you can still appeal to the Superman dynamic. Are we all still familiar with that story? But uh, uh, you know, there never was a Clark Kent. That was just Superman pretending. And, uh, and sometimes we have the idea that Jesus was not really a man. He was just God dressed up like man and perpetuating the illusion that he was man. And we know that's not the truth. And when I, when I represent it that way, it's, it's, it's off-putting at, at least and, and offensive at worst to even suggest that Jesus lived a play-act-pretending life. But, uh, and the Bible does not suggest such a thing. And as I said this morning, nobody would actually articulate his doctrinal position in that regard, but when we read the stories, we tend to think of Jesus as somehow living out those stories in the Gospels at a plain entirely different from our own that is like I say his feet never really had to touch the ground and and you know that's not the truth and one of the most blessed and important realities in this whole uh, set of ideas is that simple reality that Jesus lived your life before you his life was every bit as real one of the questions I asked and never got to on the sheet in the first hour was simply this Given the reality of Jesus' humanity, given the fact that in no sense, this does not involve setting aside or compromising or abandoning deity in any sense, to any degree, at any time, for any reason, Jesus never ceased to be God. Amen and amen. We all embrace that and, and would frankly would die for it. But by the same token, what the Bible teaches is he took upon himself genuine humanity and as such, and I think this is so important, we're gonna. I'm going to take it to Luke 2, and I'm going to background it just slightly, but I, this is the most winsome, delightful, instructive story. But again, it's so important, and the story will simply, I don't know, it just crumbles to sand in my mind if we don't really take seriously the fact that, that, that Jesus took upon himself genuine. He's growing here. But to go back to it, I I think it's so important to understand one of the ramifications of this, and this is so clear in the Scripture, but I'd invite you to rather consciously, deliberately, if you don't mind, contemplate it for a minute. Just think about this, that during his life on this earth, Jesus had no more spiritual resources than you and I. He was every bit as dependent upon what spiritual resources do you have? Well, you have the Word. And Jesus loved the word. I would argue that as a child, he tasted it and found it sweet. And he undoubtedly—and this was not really that unusual in that day—but he undoubtedly knew the entire Hebrew Scriptures by heart, and he could he could fulfill the mandate of Joshua to meditate on it day and night without having a uh, you know a pocket copy or a, on his iPhone for heaven's sake. He, 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 but. But I I think as a child, he he tasted it and found it sweet. And then as a man, he tested it and found it strong. When he was tempted of the devil, what did he do? Did he say, you can't tempt me? No, he was genuinely tempted. I know there's mystery in this, but that's what the Bible teaches. And he hid himself to the Word of God. He depended upon the Word of God. What other spiritual... You have prayer. When Jesus was going to make a very important decision... Choose 12 men to be his very special representatives, apostles. He spent a whole night in prayer. Again and again he would take himself to a private place and and spend hours and hours in prayer. What's going on there? Is that just a play act for us? No, he was dependent upon, upon prayer. Whatever the spiritual resources are that are available to us, that's what Jesus depended upon. The ministry of the Spirit was so very, very important. And it's all over the Scriptures. We don't have to imagine it. So I say that Jesus lived your life before you and he understands all of the dynamics and vicissitudes and difficulties and heartaches. Oh, I'd love to walk you through many of them. I mean, I mean, you think of the, the passage in Mark chapter 3, and I'd love to take you there. We're not going there, but where Jesus comes back to Capernaum, the town which he had made his own. He was raised in Nazareth, but for strategic reasons early in his public ministry. He had moved his family, by the way. Jesus knows what it is to rear a family. I really believe that. Because quite clearly, this is tradition, but the Bible intimates it very strongly, somewhere after the incident we're looking at, and before Jesus went to be baptized, his adopted father, Joseph, died. And All of tradition says that's a very strong tradition, but beyond that, there are many times in the gospel records when Jesus encounters his family, Joseph is never there. On the cross, he turns Mary over to John. Clearly, she's a widow. Now, here's the point. He was the eldest son. When Joseph died, and we don't know at what point, but when he died... Jesus would have necessarily, and every indication of the record is, that he did, in fact, step into the role of eldest son, become the primary uh, watch caregiver of his mother and provide for her, uh, become the surrogate uh, of his his brothers and so on, the surrogate father of his half-brothers. And there's every indication that he did just that. I think it's important to understand that Jesus knows what it is. And it's so fascinating, this made me think of it, when he moved from Nazareth, the village where his family, where he had been reared ever since he was a babe in arms, when he moved to Capernaum, because... Listen, the basic issue is this, that Nazareth is on a ridge overlooking the Jezreel Valley. It's hard to get up there, and once you get up there, you just got to come back down. And Jesus is about to commence an itinerant ministry, what we call a Galilean ministry, and it, it would have been horribly difficult to conduct such a ministry from Nazareth. On the other hand, Capernaum was where all the roads met. I mean, he's going to really saturate the land of Israel, which he is going to do three times. Luke says that he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in all their synagogues, healing all that came in unto him. So he has this hugely important ministry of presenting himself to the Jews, and most of the Jews are up in Galilee, but all the roads lead to Capernaum. So he moves to Capernaum very early, strategically. But he takes his family with him. He he is still in charge of that family. And on the cross, he is still caring for his mother in one of the most poignant moments in in, in the Gospels. So my point is, I lost my way, that, that to be sure... Jesus knows the heartaches that we face. And then that marvelous passage, marvelous, that heart, that gut-wrenching, melancholy passage in Mark 3 where he comes back to Capernaum and people have been bringing their sick from other lands. And by the way, if you did that, if you had you know, a sick child or a sick parent and you were going to make the 40, 80-mile trip from Syrophoenicia to Capolis or, 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 or the, the, even the Mesopotamia and so on, where would you go? Jesus is out traveling. You'd go to his home. You go to Capernaum. You wait for him to come back. You know this is his home base. So he comes back. There are these hundreds and thousands of people probably waiting to be healed. And uh, when his brothers hear about it, his family comes and takes him uh, to take him home. Remember what the Bible says, Mark three twenty one, thinking him to be mad. And when the news got to Jesus, he looked around the room and he said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Are not ye who do the will of God? Now I always think, do you think Jesus said that with a dry cheek? you think Jesus loved his earthly family any less than you love your family? And yet, his own brothers, John 7, verse 2, didn't believe on him. Do you think that broke his heart? See, Jesus understands. You've You've got to embrace that. All right, now I lose my way. Let me come back then. So I'm saying that Jesus lived a life stunningly stunningly like yours. Now, all right, I'm just going to leave it at that. Let me take you to Luke chapter 2. And, 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 and the point I started out to make is simply this, that if you have this what I, well, no, not I think. And we would all agree if we actually articulate this, this deficient and I would say crippling, and in most cases witless, approach to jesus that so many take that he's some sort of a clark kent some sort of a disguised superman he really he doesn't live like we live it just it's so crippling and 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 my point is that one of the ways i think which you can ah, sort of very very surgically or practically address and correct that notion is to trace these places where we see jesus learning and uh and and it's explicit well, sometimes it's explicit, sometimes it's implicit, but let me take you to Luke chapter two, a long time getting there and this is a delightful story now, let me just say, I think I already said it, but the uh the record is silent from the time Jesus as a baby, and I would argue he is still a babe in arms when his Uh, mother and adopted father, Mary and Joseph, bring him back from Egypt, would have settled down there in Judea. But the word comes that Herod's butcher son, Archelaus, is indeed going to be given the portion of uh, Herod the Great's rule down there in Judea. And so Mary and Joseph take the baby Jesus and they return to Nazareth, Matthew chapter 2. From that time until when Jesus went to be baptized by John, the Bible is silent about Jesus' life. And thus they're called the silent years. Uh, again, I say not because nothing was happening, but because the Bible doesn't record anything. Now, I'm not going to go here, but I appealed to a passage in Luke chapter 4 where very quickly, at uh, in, in, in the very beginning of his, of his public ministry, Jesus goes back to Nazareth, to the synagogue where he grew up and where the people who in that synagogue, knew him better than anybody else in the world knew him. They knew him his whole life, and he read the scriptures and claimed to be the Messiah. And they were aghast. They were shocked. And uh, as a matter of fact, one of the it seems impediments to their accepting Jesus' claims was, "Hey, this is this is Jesus. Who lives down the street. We've known him all of our lives. Now he's going to Now I, I appeal to that to make the case that in retrospect. The Bible is quite clear in that narrative, and Luke goes out of his way, went to the Nazareth where he was reared, and he went to the synagogue that it was his custom to go to. So Luke is trying to tell us, he's going to the people who know him best, and yet when he claims carefully but openly to be Messiah, they're dumbstruck, not dumbstruck, they're dumbfounded. Their response is, this is Joseph's son which is to say, if there's one word, I always say that you've got to write over Jesus' boyhood, it is the word normal. Don't think of it as a little boy doing all sorts of miracles or glowing in the dark or walking around with a little halo hovering above his head. All of those notions are so crippling. And the fact is that he lived a normal boyhood, but part of that, the one episode that we have in those silent years is right here in Luke 2, and we've read it, so... Let me just take you to it, Luke chapter 2, and it begins with uh, uh, verse 40, where it says uh, the child, well I like to begin with verse 40, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, the favor of God was upon him, and as is typical in the Bible, you have these kind of summary statements that sweepingly survey several years, but it picks the, Luke tells the story Uh, In verse 41, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Now listen, I'm going to give you a lot of background here, so hold on for dear life. But Jesus was a Galilean, and specifically he was a Nazarene. He was not a Nazarite, that's a vow in number six, totally different. He's a Nazarene, that simply means that he was from Nazareth. Nazareth was, as I say, it was a relatively small, well it was quite a small village, it was a village, it was unwalled. Uh, it was primarily agricultural. Interestingly enough, as I said, it sits on a ridge that looks right down on the Jezreel Valley, that most important valley in all the world, that crossroads of the world. And, uh, and, and because, all right, geography. I watched your eyes glaze over when I said the word geography. But real quickly, listen. Uh, the reason Israel is, and, the, and you know what? The way the earth is shaped is not accidental. God shaped it very carefully. And one of the most important dynamics is that so much of the international traffic, armies and caravans, had to pass through Israel. Just a matter of pure, unmistakable geography, topography. So you got all of this passage and all of that traffic would be funneled into the Jezreel Valley. And that's why it's always been, there have been 42 history-shaping battles in the course of history on the Valley of Jezreel, primarily at a place called Megiddo, which guards the most important pass out of the Jezreel Valley to the south. And uh, that's where Josiah, good King Josiah, died. Remember this story, trying to stop the uh, Pharaoh Necho? Uh, Let's not go there. But the point is that, uh, and by the way, that, that, that Megiddo sits on a little hill, that city that guards the most important pass into the Jezreel Valley, sits on a little hill, and the Aramaic word for hill is Har. So it comes to us as Har Megiddo and there's going to be a battle fought in days to come for exactly that same reason. Armageddon, you're talking about Armageddon, and it's going to happen there because of the lay of the land. Now my point is, here's Nazareth sitting down, looking right down on that valley, and so the Romans realized the advantage, the strategic character of that hill, and they put a battalion of troops up there. And they were mercenaries, They were most of them foreign foreign. And that's why it was dangerous to live I say dangerous. The close presence of a large outpost of Roman troops really made life a bit odious up there in that hills. So that makes sense to you? And this is why uh, the response of Tom, when you heard he came from Nazareth, was can any good thing come out of Nazareth and so on? It was a much despised place. But at any rate, I say that, and that's, I think, what Matthew 2 is saying. When uh, All right, better not go there. But the point is, come back to me. The fact is that this little village of Nazareth... Uh, Uh, where where Jesus was reared. Uh, Okay, that's not what I wanted to go. I lost my way. I'd do that. The fact is, he was a Galilean. And about 100 years before Jesus, a a Hasmonean prince-priest, that is, the Hasmoneans were a family of priests that were controlling Israel at the time, Jerusalem, and they had gone up and annexed Galilee. And up until that, the Jews who had come back from Persia and so on, lived there under Persia and then Rome, uh, pretty much lived right in the hills around Jerusalem. But it was getting too crowded. And Galilee is so lush, so pleasant. I always quote the rabbinical uh, saying that uh, it's easier to to rear ten sons in Galilee than to grow one vineyard in Judea. And it's true. Judea is the tough living, Jerusalem, Galilee is the good. So all the Jews moved up there. And there were many, many more Jews living in Galilee in Jesus' day than there were in Jerusalem. Does make sense to you? Because it was such lush land. Josephus, at one point, he's really talking about one little strip, but I think you can apply it to all of Galilee. He regards Galilee as the ambition of nature. I like that phrase. If nature could be what it wants to be, it would be Galilee. Just beautiful, flowing, long, fertile hills. And, and so, at any rate... Most of the Jews in Jesus day in Israel lived in Galilee but the temple was in Jerusalem and year by year they would go down to the to the to the to the temple in Jerusalem for various feasts and the big one was Passover now here you need to understand it's a little bit of this is a little heavy but there were a couple of routes by which they might go in either case they could take the ridge route but that went through Samaria that made that dangerous so they could take what's called the rift route they go down to the Jordan rift travel along the Jordan river But you're alongside the desert, desert's where robbers live, so the point is, either route from from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem, and then after the eight days of the feast from Jerusalem back to Galilee, it was a bit dangerous. So you never traveled it alone. And they would gather in somewhat spontaneous bands of Passover pilgrims, scores of them, maybe a couple hundred of them, and they would make their way along the five or six day journey down to Jerusalem and down south to Jerusalem and then up to Jerusalem as they climbed the hills toward Jerusalem. And, and they would never, they would never, in other words, they had a bit of a protocol. And that is that the men would be on the outside watching for any enemies or danger and so on. The women and the children would be in. So you have a large company. So now here's the story. They go down to the to the feast. And and notice it says in verse 42 that when he was 12 years old, and by the way, I want to go back because I didn't finish a point there. I think it's important to understand what Luke is telling us in verse 41 is Jesus knew the drill. Every year they did this. So Jesus knew this, exactly how it worked and so on. And, uh, and, and it says, when he was 12 years old. Now let me suggest something to you. Stay with me here. I believe. Okay. I believe with two or three fibers of my being. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm not going to die for it. I'm not going. But I, I, I think it's, it's important to the story. And I don't know of any other explanation as to why. I think this is the year of Jesus' bar mitzvah. I think that's why it's mentioned that he's 12 years old. Now let me stop on that and make sure everybody's on the same page. Today, there is a very important rite, R-I-T-E, of passage in Jewish life by which a boy is uh, graduated to the role of man, and it happens somewhere around 13 years of age. And, and it's called the bar mitzvah. By means of the bar mitzvah, he becomes a son of the law. And the bar mitzvah, now listen, I'm going to tell you, I know that what we have today we can only trace back about 400 years. When I, go, when I take people to Jerusalem and God's in his sweet and inexplicable providences has given me just, it's so nice. My wife and I take groups to Israel. Listen, if you take me in the backyard and turn me around, I can't find a house. I mean, I am the most, it's amazing that I do this. But, go figure. But But the point is that And I do. I very much enjoy taking people to Israel. When we go, I love to contrive. As a matter of fact, I build a calendar to make sure that we're in the Temple area, down by the Western Wall Plaza there, on a Monday or a Thursday, because that's when they bar mitzvah. And they are just such a delight. I mean, they all they hire a little kazoo band. I call it, but it's like he's got a bongo and a guy with a shofar and sometimes a fiddle and a saxophone. Who knows what all? It's pretty noisy. And here come the, uh, the parents and they the whole family. Sometimes they're coming from America. You know, they got a whole bus and they drive up and they're all dressed to the nines. And it's just another day in Israel. And they'll set up their place where they're going to have the meal afterwards and so on. And then this little band will play and they'll carry a canopy. And the little boy, you can always tell. It's fun to pick him out because his shoulders are almost touching. You know, he's so embarrassed. Just going like this, you know. And, uh, and, and, his, and his mother is weeping and kissing him, and, and all of his aunts are slobbering all over him and so on. But And his his fellows are all making fun of him and so on. But it, it's, And they sing, and they, and they love to have you join. So they'll just stop somewhere, just one of the places, right inside the Dung Gate, which is the gate on the south. They'll come in that gate going up toward the plaza, And several times we've stood there and they were, you know, doing a circle dance with them and so on and so on. They just, they love to have you join in and so on. But so anyway, my point is that the bar mitzvah today is a big deal. But here's the, here's the thing. I don't know exactly. And people will tell me that. I've, I've done the research that we can go back about 400 years and trace the modern bar mitzvah. But we know that in the first century, we know that in Jewish culture, there was a formal time at which a boy became a man. There's just no doubt about it. For one thing, you have it appealed to in a very important illustration in Galatians chapter 3, where Paul says, he's talking about, ah, this is a very important passage, I won't get, but he says, when you were under the law, you were like sons, even though you were heirs. I'm sorry, you were like boys, children, uh, and, even, and, 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 and even though you were the heirs, you were treated as servants, but now you have become men. And that's a bar mitzvah that he's talking to. So, so it makes sense to you, there was a, all right. Just trust me. <laughs> there is, there always has been. No, don't trust me. But I'm telling you, it's in the Bible. Uh, there, 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 there. This, this idea, of, and every culture has this. Really, we do too. By the way, we call it college. It's a very expensive process. But, but think about it. You send them off, kids. You hope they come home grown ups, right? I mean, but, 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 uh, honest to goodness, there was a a deliberate process, ceremony by which the boy would be and. And by the way, and I have a note on your sheet here, and I'll be very quick about it, but under what be there, I say at about the age of 12, a Jewish boy becomes a son of the law. That's what bar mitzvah means, bar mitzvah, uh, and is admitted to the privileges of adulthood in the religion and society of Israel. And then I say note regarding the concept of son. Now this is a bit of an aside, but I, I think it's important here. Folks, I think Christians generally, quietly, privately, stumble or stagger just a little bit at the idea that Jesus is the Son of God. Because, and by, because you know, a son in our nomenclature was called into existence by his father and the whole Arian controversy or the whole Arian heresy is a, is, a, is a function of that particular. Well, if he's a son, then it must have been brought. Learn to read the Bible in terms of its own culture. Get to know the culture, think the culture, and the best resource... Readily available to you, to get really, really intimately familiar with the culture of the Bible is the Old Testament. Read the Old Testament. Read the narratives and read them in terms of their own culture. Now, in our culture, a son is pretty much a first-generation male uh, 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 descendant. In in that culture, if uh, uh, if you've got a son, who's got a son at home? Then, well, how old's your son? Ten. All right. Do you have any other boys? Yeah. How old are they? Alright, so if I'm saying our brother here, do you hear that? He's got a 26 year old son, he's got a 25 year old son, he's got a 10 year old son sitting there with him. If I were to say, do you have any sons? He would say, yeah, I have two. And I have one It's going to be a son in a couple of years. Because technically now, but it's really important to the culture, when a boy is bar mitzvahed, he he is promoted to the privileges of, uh, and, and responsibilities of adulthood. And, uh, uh, and, and, and it, it, there was no set age. Paul says this, at the po- time appointed by the father. Now today it's pretty standard at 13, though, not necessarily, but, but, but there was no set age. But when the boy was sufficiently mature to step into that role you would you would bar mitzvah him. And I'm sure that this Jesus with his unfallen human nature and person was was very mature. And so I'm saying to you that, I, oh, now let me finish the thought. I'm saying to you that I think when it says there, the reason Luke tells us when he was 12 is because he's trying to say this was the year that he had been admitted to the role of adult, of, of son. Now, the point to be made here with regard to that note in your sheet is this. Bear with me for just a second. But I think this can be helpful. The fact is that In that culture, at the bar mitzvah, the boy became a son. And there were a lot of elements and dynamics to that, and it plays itself out in various word pictures and concepts in the Scripture. But fundamental to the idea of a bar mitzvah and of sonship is that the boy is now the equal of his father. Now what that means is he's to be given the same he, the same r- regard and so on. There's a famous story. I mean, famous. I mean, I tell the story all the time. I'm probably the only guy that thinks it's famous. But but uh, a guy by the name of William Thompson wrote a book called The Land of the Book in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He was a traveler, traveled through the Bible lands, very, very rugged. And uh, he, he tells a story about coming to a place where there was a sheikh, a, a, you know, a mid-eastern sheikh who, or, or wealthy man who had a big oasis and he lived there and uh, he stayed with him. Thompson stayed with him for some weeks. And, and while he was there, he says every morning you'd have the same scene. The, 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 the father, the sheikh, would be sitting on a pillow, sort of on a raised area. And all of his servants would be on their, literally on their knees. This is how the day started. And he would give them all, you know, you go to the shops, you go to the fields, you take care of the water, whatever in the world. But on the end of the line were his own sons on their knees, and they would be sent off. And then he says, Thompson said, I went away, and I had the occasion to come back. And when I came back, same scene, same guy, same scene, same oasis. And in the morning, same ritual. But now one of those sons was sitting next to him because he had come of age. When you were children, you were treated as servants. But now are, you are sons. Now, the point is that one of the very clear Meanings of that word picture is that the son is now the equal of his father. And all throughout the scriptures, I'm telling you, all throughout the scriptures, again and again, in the most sort of unstudied ways, the word son of, or the phrase son of means one with, equal to, to be identified with. Does that make sense to you? And that's why Judas is called the son of perdition. That has nothing to do with his parents. Uh, In Jesus' day, Jesus' contemporaries, the Jewish leaders, were embarrassed by the fact that in the Scriptures, their own forefathers had murdered the prophets. So they would build uh, uh, tombs or monuments to the prophets as if to say, if we'd have been there, we wouldn't wouldn't have killed the prophets. And Jesus says to those those leaders, he says, you'll go about to murder me. And in so doing, you prove that you are indeed the sons of your father. That has nothing to do with lineage, right? You're just like their father. So when Jesus, nobody, nobody in, in that generation understood son of to mean brought into existence by. When he claimed to be the son of God, they understood he was claiming to be one with God. That's the culture. Does that make sense to you? Now, I sell it just to make the point that that's one of the dynamics. And at the bar mitzvah, and I think this plays into it, at the bar mitzvah, there are certain privileges as well as responsibilities which belong to you. By the way, and this is huge uh, to this story. Up until the bar mitzvah, the boy was a boy. He was treated as a boy. He, he may work in, the, in, in whatever his father does. Uh, he, he might work around with him, but he was a boy. He'd play with his fellows. He'd work around the house. Whatever. Once he was bar mitzvah, he became apprentice to his father. Now, in this, in this, in this culture... You don't spend a lot of time in biblical culture, in ancient Near Eastern culture, wondering what you're going to be when you grow up, pondering that issue. As a matter of fact, uh, David Wells in this book, uh, Above All Earthly Powers, he makes this point It just struck me. He said, today we, we, our lives are suffused with personal choices, the, the made strictly on the basis of what we prefer. So you're going to go to lunch this afternoon might go home, then you got to pretty much take what's up, but you might go to the restaurant, everybody choose, right? You sit in the car and everybody has his own earphones, chooses what he wants to listen to. I mean, to tell you, it, 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 in, in in biblical times, you might choose whether to lay on your back on your side at night, you know, while you're sleeping. But after that, you just pretty much did what was laid out in front of you. Honest to goodness, it was it was... And, and so you didn't spend any time pondering what you're going to be. You're going to be what your father is, a boy. He's going to do what is. and it, one of the most important responsibilities of the father was to apprentice his boys and, and prepare them for, for a life supporting his family in that guild or trade or whatever. Uh, I mentioned this morning, and this is hard on some people, but I am convinced that Joseph, and Joseph's father before him, was a stonemason. Now I know we always think of him as a carpenter because that's the way the word is translated. When it's talking about Joseph, it says Joseph was a carpenter. The Greek word is tekton. It means, it can be taken generally to mean craftsman or artificer, but it really means builder. That's what it means. He was a builder. And uh, because in antiquity, in Israel, I don't know about antiquity, but in Israel today, there's no wood. You don't build with wood. You build with stone. Everything is built with stone. Not today, it's poured concrete. But in antiquity, everything was built with stone. And so I think most likely Jesus uh, was a Joseph. Jesus' adopted father was a stonemason, and 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 once you are bar mitzvahed, I think this is important to the story. It's it's time to leave behind your boyhood years where life was a little bit uh, open and free, and now you're going to be apprenticed by your father for whatever you're going to give yourself, and for several years, uh, apprentice. And and I think Jesus. Uh, was undoubtedly a master stonemason, and, uh, which, by the way, is not easy work. Uh, there are several indications that Jesus was rather remarkably virile, strong. The fact that he could survive a 40-day fast. Not many of us could, uh, I think. And the fact that he could survive the agony that we're going to talk about tomorrow night in the garden, where he sweat great drops of blood that bespeaks physical pressure and anxiety. That uh, would kill most people, and uh, and yet, yet he was able to survive it. I think I think, but but anyway, come way back to it now. So I'm saying that I'll go back to the story. I I believe that the reason Luke tells us there are only two specific chronological notations in the life of Jesus: Luke two and Luke three. Luke 2 says he was 12 when he went to Jerusalem for this feast that we're talking about. And Luke, 30, uh, Luke uh, 3 says that he was 30, about to be 30, when he went to be baptized by Jesus. I think they're both significant. But so I would argue that this is, is very probably a reference to the fact that he'd gone up every year. But when he was 12, they went up according to the custom. In verse 42, in other words, the way they did it. And then it says this, when the feast was ended, now, I want to stop here quickly. Let me add one other point. And I, again, (laughs) one of the privileges that was afforded a boy who had become a man, one of the uh, elements of the ritual which changed once you had been bar mitzvahed was that as a man you could go into the court of Israel and participate in the slaying of the lamb. Now, there were, there were certain zones in the second temple, this temple built by Zerubbabel and then remodeled by Herod. But uh, the fact is that the business of sacrifice was done in what's called the court of Israel. Now, I'm aware that the court may be an uh, extended during the Passover because of the massive amount of sl- uh, lambs. But let's just say that every other year, here comes Jesus with Mary and Joseph and the other siblings, or half-siblings, to be careful. And I think uh, Joseph would have had the lamb with him without a doubt. You had to have that lamb with you for four days before you went and had it slain. You had to actually keep it more or less like a pet for four days. You couldn't just keep it out of pasture. And uh, But now they come to uh, the slaying of the lamb on the 14th of Nisan between the evenings, and here comes the family. And they would come as far as the court of the women, because that's as far as Jewish women or underage Jewish boys could come. And I picture Jesus, as it were, uh, holding on to the arm of his mother while his father Joseph carried that lamb inside the court of Israel. And they wait, and in time he comes back, and now he has a little basket And the lamb has been slain and butchered, and he has the meat, and they would go to the place they had prepared, probably just a pup tent on the side of a hill, to be honest with you. You had to keep the Passover indoors, but everybody carried a tent in that day. I mean, tents, they really, but probably that's where they would go. But on this one year, and I think this is part of the story, that here comes Jesus and the family. And now, for the first time, Jesus, as it were, drops his mother's arm and takes his father's arm, and together, maybe carrying the lamb, they go into the court of Israel. And Jesus, as a boy, would have been singing, as did every young Jewish boy who for the first time entered that unspeakably sacred sanctuary. He would have been singing, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And now Jesus goes in and watches as the Lamb is slain. You know, let me just stop on that. <laughs> the Old Testament Levitical system was designed by God to absolutely assault your physical senses. It, this is a, we, we think of the temple and it's so pristine, cathedral-like, it was a slaughterhouse. Tens of thousands of animals being slain, one after the other. And when a sin sacrifice was made, and it's not explicit, but I, I'm, I, I tend to think that, that this is true of the Passover lamb. But the Bible says that they, the offerer would lay his hands on the lamb. Now the Hebrew doesn't mean just touch, it means this. You would support all of your weight on the lamb. That's exactly what the Hebrew says. And, and I think it is because, as I said, the, sin, the, the, the temple system and all of its parts was just designed to assault your physical senses. So here you are in that posture, and along comes the priest. And you hand him a carefully honed knife. Usually every family had a Passover knife. These are the knives that Peter and John had with them in the upper room. But you hand the priest a knife, and as you are leaning on that lamb... With one careful stroke, humane stroke, he slits the neck of that lamb. Now you're going to smell the blood as it's evacuated. You're going to hear the death rattle in his throat. You're going to you're, you're, you're gonna watch as he collapses. You're, you're going to, if you don't mind, stumble on top of him. And in a few hours you're going to eat the meat. Every one of your physical senses is being assaulted. Does that make sense to you? Why? Why would God demand that of you? Because He's trying to teach you something. And it seems to me that there are two grand lessons that are built into that experience. One is that there is a God in heaven who will not tolerate sin. He can't. He cannot tolerate sin. The wages of sin is death. God didn't have to deliberate that, He didn't have to, to, to consider options. Given who he is, he cannot tolerate sin. He must punish sin. But the second reality is this, that that same God is so merciful, so loving, that he will provide an innocent victim who can die the death you deserve to die. That's why you're leaning on the lamb. He's going to die my death. And God will provide an innocent victim who will die the death that you deserve to die. Is that a picture? And it becomes your death. That is, that lamb dies your death. Why? Because you've leaned all your weight upon him. You're not trusting in anything else. Now, I put all, I I stopped there. I think that's what's behind this picture. And certainly on Passover, you know the story of Passover, how the lamb was slain and the blood was was, was, uh, uh, was spread on the lintel, and then the death angel passed over and so on. So the means of your deliverance was the shed blood of an innocent victim of God's choosing. Well, this is the first time in his mortal life Jesus has ever seen this. I think it would have struck him. I think he would have known from his own careful reading of the Scriptures with an uncorrupted mind that that was indeed a picture of what was going to happen to him. And I think Jesus was probably a bit staggered by the experience of going for the first time. You haven't done it. I haven't done it. But don't you imagine that it was a staggering experience to go in and witness the slaying of an innocent... Do you think lambs were any less cute back then than they are today? You know what I'm saying? There's this cute little lamb, and you've had him with you for four days. So The Bible says he has to be with you. You can't put him out in a pasture. You've got to keep him like a pet for four days so that he trusts you. And, uh, and, and now you're going to take that little lamb that you kids have played with so on, you're going to stand him there, and you're going to watch as his throat is slit. And the idea of innocence paying the price of the guilty is pretty powerfully communicated. All right, now come back to me. I would argue that again. That's part of the picture here, but let me go a little further. I want to. I want to focus, and we'll be done. In, ooh, I'm supposed to be done. Oh, I'm in such trouble. All right, I lost my way, but I can be done quick. Give me a couple minutes. Look, uh, verse 43. When the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind. His parents didn't know it. Now again, but supposing him to be in the company, in the group. So you set out, you figure he's with the mom, and Joseph thinks he's with Mary, and Mary thinks he's with Joseph, or the other kids. They get to the end of the day, they settle down as nuclear families, and they can't find him. We lost the Messiah. This is not a good thing. So... Then they began to search for him among all their relatives, and nobody was there. So when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And after three days, that is on the third day, so it's about a day out, about a day back, now they look around, go to homes and so on, but they finally come to the temple. I've got to be quick. And, and when they find Jesus, Jesus uh, 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 says to them, why did you look for me? And he does not mean, why did you come back and seek for me? He means, why would you look anywhere else? And it's interesting that Jesus says, and it's there in verse... They find him with the, with the rabbis. Oh, I needed time to tell you about this, and I spent too much time elsewhere. But suffice it to say, rabbis were the most thoroughly regarded people in the land... Uh, they were usually itinerant, but they would come to the city of Jerusalem for the feasts and they would set their disciples about them and they would have these, these open air, you know, kind of questions and, and discussing the weightier matters of the law. And you are welcome to, to involve yourself. And here's, Peter, here's young Jesus. He's got this mind which is uncrippled. And he loves the scriptures. And, and so he's drawn to it and he's interacting with them and so on. And everybody is amazed at how under, he understands the scriptures, but his, his mother comes. And, and and she says right there, when his the parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said, Son, why have you treated us so treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, uh, Why were you looking for me? In other words, why would you come why wouldn't you come here? And then he says this, and I don't like this translation. I'm going to correct it. He says, Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now I know what's at stake there. What the Greek says is, what Jesus said to his mother is, don't you know I must be about that which is my father's? That's what it says. That which is my father's. Now what's he talking about? All right, here's my point. I'm going to say it quickly and, and have me for lunch. You know what I'm saying? But uh, I think this is what's at stake. <laughs> Folks, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I want to emphasize once again Jesus took upon himself genuine humanity. He had to learn. This is an interesting scene in Jesus' life because he's kind of at, a, he's at the cusp between boyhood and adulthood. He knows that it's his responsibility now to step into his father's business. He knows from his reading of the Scriptures that he is uniquely and specially the Son of God. He knows that he is to be the Messiah, see what I'm saying? I believe Jesus said to himself, it's time for me to commence the work that I know my heavenly father has for me. That's our culture. Don't you know? It's time for me to be about That which is my father's. The old King James has my father's business, which I think is the best translation for us just to understand. Whatever, I know that as a newly bar mitzvah boy, it's time to step into the role that I'm going to give myself to. And my heavenly father has called me to be the Messiah. I need to be busy about that time. And something about, and I just so cherish and regard the woman Mary, his mother, but something about her earnest plea the Father in Heaven used to help Jesus understand as a boy, no, no. It's not time to be about your heavenly Father's business. It's time to be about your earthly Father's business. I think that's exactly what's going on here. Jesus needed, and I ask the question there. Let me just cut to the quick, down there, the application. I say, uh, who learned a lesson here? And what was the lesson? Clearly, Jesus learned something. And having... having come to the conclusion it was time to be about his heavenly father's business somehow his mother's entreaty helped him understand because look at the next verse the next verse is so interesting it says they didn't understand and so on but it's verse 51 I am after he went down with them and came to nazareth and was submissive to them and i think that meant he apprenticed himself to his father joseph and he began the hard work of learning stone masonry and he is going to give himself that for 18 years for 18 years. He's going to live a quiet, normal life, an industrious life. A, along the way he's probably going to follow, bury his father Joseph when he does. He's going to watch over his mother and uh, for 18 years. Now my point is this, and some people, and I ask a silly question there, but with this I'm done. I'm late. I ask the question on your sheet. Uh, if Jesus if there were bicycles in his, in his culture, could he have ridden a two-wheeler the first time he rode? tried? See where I'm going with this? <laughs> of course he couldn't. It's a, it's a learned skill. He'd have had to, you know, Joseph running along behind, trying to get... Now my point is, not the point, but the other question is, would it have been wicked for him to fall and skin his knee? Would you scold him for, for falling? No, of course not. You're learning. And I would argue that that's exactly what's going on in this scene. Young Jesus having nobly come to the conclusion on the basis of everything he knew from the Scriptures that now that he was an adult, it was time to be busy about his heavenly Father's business. And now God intervenes through Mary, and young Jesus understands it's not time to be at my heavenly... Now, let me tell you something. He's going to wait for 18 years. The years are going to go by. The vicissitudes of life are going to befall him and his family. And 18 years later, in all innocence, he's going to hear that his cousin John is baptizing anybody who believes that the kingdom is about to appear. I think Jesus very innocently thought, well, I certainly believe that. I've been waiting. It's certainly right. He goes and is baptized. As he comes up out of the waters of baptism, the Spirit of God drives him into the very ministry that he had been preparing for back there in Luke chapter 2. See the point? After all those years... Now, have there been or are there spiritual longings and goals and desires in your life that you've prayed over and waited for and so on? Jesus knows what that's like. And I think uh, it's just helpful to realize, and I, and I wind up with that, I was going to go a little further, but I'll just leave it at this, that Jesus, I'm going to say it all over again, that Jesus took upon himself genuine humanity, As mysterious as it is, what the Bible teaches is that he lived a life stunningly like yours. And along the way, he had to learn and grow, and the Bible is explicit that he grew and learned and so on. And I think this is one example. But to me, it's such an encouragement to understand, as I said before, that whatever it is, whatever, if it's just the normal, difficult succession of life growing and so on, or if it's the crises and heartaches and disappointments of life, know this, that Jesus understands. He's been there. You have a high priest who can be genuinely, sympathetically, lovingly touched with the feeling of your infirmities. Amen and amen.